update at noon. We're joined once more by uh, Dr. Kari Oderman, a political scientist who is currently in Germany. Uh, Dr. Oderman, good to speak to you again. Welcome to Update at Noon. Thank you. But this is going to be a really thankless job today if you'd like me to explain logically what's happening. So I'll let you take the lead. <laughs> and, and, and that's just it. You know, as we have been speaking over several weeks and despite those weeks of diplomatic efforts uh, by various world leaders, uh, we find ourselves here today at what obviously is a watershed moment. But how do we describe this watershed? Well, I think the best way to describe it is um, everyone's worst fears are indeed coming true. Ursula von der Leyen um, accurately was not talking about trying to reboot the Soviet Union. She made a statement that academics have been trading with each other in the last weeks and months about really a rebirth of the Russian Empire. And Vladimir Putin, he's 69 years old, and I am not going to try to do some kind of type of psychological analysis, but he could remain in leadership for at least another 15 years. And we need to prepare um, politicians, policymakers need to prepare how they're going to deal with uh, continued activities like this, because I don't think that's going to stop with Ukraine. Let's keep in mind that in 2008, he took over part of Georgia. In 2014, he annexed Crimea. He has troops in part of Moldova. And these were all steps along the way. And the international community was very complacent, thinking that, you know, okay, he'll do this and not much more. And this morning between 5 and 6 a.m., many Ukrainians had a very rude awakening. One, however, that they were expecting in many ways. It's those of us on the outside right now that seem surprised, but I think the average cynical Ukrainian on the street now um, would probably say, I told you so. And I think those are important touch points that uh, you make there, Dr. Oderman, because when we look at what happened in Crimea, as you say, parts of Moldova, uh, if you look at the instability in the Black Sea region, all of this has been, you know, indicative of what could possibly happen. But as you say, for some reason, there didn't seem to be too much, um, you know, of a pushback from the international community. But even now, as um, I'm trying to keep a tab on the live uh, pictures and developments within uh, eastern Ukraine, you know, you see troops, uh, the Guardian saying that uh, there are troops, Russian troops that are entering, um, you know, from uh, various other areas. I'm just trying to see this one here. It says uh, the Russians are coming in from um, some of the neighboring countries. Uh, This here... And I'm just trying to follow this as I speak to you, um, Dr. Oderman, from Belarus, for example. So what does that mean for what is actually unfolding? Well, what this means is one of uh, a lot of think tanks were putting out um, possible invasion scenarios. And this is the scenario where Ukraine is in a pincer shape from uh, troops that were brought to Belarus Uh, as part of what was at the time called um, troop maneuvers. 
and uh, they were left there and made to be battle ready. Um, and there are reports, and I do need to say we need to be very careful because a lot of these reports are unsubstantiated. They are coming in through social media. The pictures are believable, but I just want to qualify that for your listeners. There are reports that troops have started moving from the north towards the capital city, Kiev, out of Belarus. There are also troops in the so-called republics, which are then going to try to keep pushing forward. There are reports that there are Russian, Russian soldiers now on some of um, the main highways. I believe the E-40, which actually goes from Paris to Moscow, is being used right now by soldiers. There are also unconfirmed reports that the Ukrainians have been able to fight back, um, use some of the weapons some of their Western neighbors and allies have supplied for them. But again, on social media, Ukrainians are being very careful because they don't want to give away any of the strategic information of their own troops. There is very spotty cellular service right now in some of the major cities. Internet seems to be working. Most people are um, deciding between either what we say bugging out or bugging in. Um, right now, there's major traffic jams, people trying to move towards the west in Kiev. Those are the people that have decided to leave the city for safety. Other people that don't have their own vehicles, because now you have to keep in mind, airspace has been closed. People that had finally decided to leave and had flights no longer can take them. And uh, major rail stations and train stations are being closed down because having those people coming in and out of these infrastructure points makes them too vulnerable and these people too vulnerable. So there are people that have two hard choices, either to try to leave and go towards the West or um, stay in bomb shelters around the city. Dr. Oderman, Vladimir Putin says this is a special military operation. Um, We've heard other world leaders calling it a full-on war. What is it at the moment? Well, it's special because it's completely disregarding international law. And this is finally the test that is going to prove the strength of if the ideas of territorial integrity work. Um, Just a little bit for your listeners to understand. Small states exist because our system that our societies have built up do not does not recognize that only the biggest and strongest win. There is a value to a country, and countries are formed based on four or five criteria in international law. Recognition is one of them, but there has to be a majority of recognition. And by disregarding um, territorial integrity, the entire system of international law uh, starts to come into question. It's it's a given that we should be able to count on. It's, it's right up there with um, the immunity of diplomats. And um, what this means is that Putin is testing the system because he wants to um, have his advantages at, um, to the detriment of the rest of the world right now, honestly. So what can the rest of the world um, do at the moment, uh, realistically? Let's start with the United Nations. So uh, we played a little bit of that tense standoff that happened in the Security Council, the, or rather the meeting that was called last night. And um, if we look at the makeup of the United Nations Security Council at the moment, which the Russian Federation, of course, is chairing as we speak, what could the United Nations Security Council possibly resolve at this point? Well, there's a couple 
tricky things here. And I don't claim to be an expert in international law, but I think we're all going to become experts in the next few days. What's going to happen now is, uh, strangely enough, uh, Russia, the Russian ambassador actually had the chairmanship during um, last night's meeting when Russia attacked Ukraine. And this um, Russia has a veto in the Security Council. And although excluding them from their veto right when they're participating in a conflict, has never taken place. This might be the first example in post-World War II Security Council history where the Security Council discusses something and does not allow Russia to use its veto right because it's one of the aggressors. The next point is there's been some discussion about whether or not Russia truly is the successor of the Soviet Union. And there are some people that are trying to uh, I don't want to say playing a game because that makes it sound um, frivolous, but they're pointing out that perhaps um, Russia should not even have a veto on the Security Council or play as and have as much control as they do because um, the UN Charter was never updated to shift from the Soviet Union to Russia, the Confederation of Independent States as we now know it. So the Security Council also can work out sanctions. So there are there are three options there. First of all, don't let them have veto in these discussions. Um, question the fact whether or not they really are the successor of the Soviet Union, if they deserve to um, sit on the Security Council, and um, sanctions. And 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 what could be the possible repercussions of such a move? Because if you look at the makeup of the UN Security Council at the moment, uh, the five permanent members, of course, and I'm just trying to kind of look and I know that it's not a precise science and it really means nothing uh, without you know seeing actual voting but you want to kind of get a balance of uh, a, a view for the balance of forces here. So you've got the five permanent members, as you say, if they then resolve to not have Russia uh, have veto power because they are seen as the aggressor in this instance. You then have uh, the United States, you have Brazil, China, and um, uh, uh, not Brazil, um, uh, France and the UK. Uh, those France and Germany. And Germany yeah. as your, uh, oh, yeah, me. Uh, on your, as your permanent members. But then you look at the other non-permanent members here. There's Norway, there's the United Arab Emirates, uh, you have Albania, uh, Brazil, then you have Gabon, Ghana and India. So that should make for quite interesting deliberations within that Security Council as well, wouldn't it, Dr. Oderman? It does, because any country that has a questionable border issue, and I'm looking at India right now, um, how they react is going to be very important. How China reacts to this is going to be very important, too. You have countries that have the reputation of being perhaps a little bit aggressive, and I'm doing air quotes now. Um, that means that if they were thinking about infringing on someone's territorial integrity in theory, they're going to be watching very carefully, and they're going to be trying to leave some back doors open for, for their long-term national interests. Countries that have experienced aggression, and I'm thinking especially about the Baltic states who have really been forerunners in the support for Ukraine. Uh, uh, especially Lithuania, but Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, they were absolutely absorbed into the Soviet Union and could only um, redefine themselves as countries in the early 90s. They put huge efforts into becoming NATO partners because they always acknowledged a latent uh, danger coming from Russia for their territorial integrity. 
and um, they've been quite vocal about this. Now, I, I know that doesn't answer your question about what's happening in the Security Council right now, but people that um, are interested in this should really follow which countries have border disputes and how they're reacting to the situation. If they're um, countries that have a tendency of being an aggressor, are they going to side with Russia because they'd like to use some of the same privileges Russia is trying to take out? Or are um, there countries that have suffered from aggression along their borders and are, are very resistant? To, and, and it has a lot to do with empathy. And I know this doesn't sound very academic to talk about empathy right now, but a country's ability to, to, to empathize with foreign policy and perhaps understand um, what citizens are experiencing also plays a role right now. Mm. And um, just a quick one from one of our listeners, um, Petu, who says, um, we also need to hear voices of the Ukrainians. Um, I want to hear them, like those who are making noise outside of the Ukraine. Uh, when Americans invaded Iran, Libya, and so on, uh, we never heard a call for sanctions. Why is Russia treated differently, asks Petu. Yeah. And um, also, just if we could maybe um, add to that question from my side, um the EU preparing what they call a massive package of sanctions against Russia. What kind of sanctions could that be? Okay, let me first go back to Petru's statements about hearing the voices inside Ukraine. He's absolutely right. And um, I was reluctant to talk to you today because I was evacuated because of the danger. So I'm sitting in a very privileged and safe situation. And I think that people have a tendency to watch conflicts and really remove themselves from the situation. Keep in mind, though, that you know your staff at the station, we tried to find people that could speak with you live today, but yeah. the internet and cell services were down, and a lot of people are looking for safe spots right now. So Peter's correct, and I'll be more than happy to let someone else talk about this that has firsthand experience as soon as we can get someone for your listeners. Now, what can the EU do? The EU really has, you know, the European Union used to be, started out as an economic group, and that is really where their power lies. And by sanctioning um, banks, financial institutions, and you have to keep in mind, this is a really a question of, of who has money and who doesn't have money, how they experience this conflict. Um, people with a lot of money in Russia have tried to tuck some away and have tried to be safe. There are other people in Russia, when sanctions happen, they're not going to be able to get their, their modest at that pensions, but they're depending on that. Um, a lot of Russians have family members that live outside of the United, uh, outside of Russia in the United States, for example, and that money that supports them is, isn't going, isn't going to flow. And, and that is tragic. But at the same time, it is a very effective way to show um, to to show Vladimir Putin that his actions are not only affecting his people, um, but you know, going beyond. And um, I think the sanctions are what the European Union can do. Um, because I'm sitting in Germany, I've been watching the coverage, and um, they've been doing lots of lives, speaking with people in Kiev, in Ukraine, and these people are all saying, "We need." your support, Germany. We need your support, Germany. And um, Germany is offering support also. Just uh, just yesterday, they finally put a hold on Nord Stream 2 in, in for the midterm. And uh, the German vice chancellor from the Green Party 
um, a gentleman by the last name of Habeck, he, um, he is really now tying energy security with um, security in general as part of his role. Mm. And uh, just a quick one on how this is affecting Germany because of that energy supply. Um, are there any effects being felt at the moment? Not at the moment right now, but Germany, like a lot of other places around the world, has experienced inflation and rising energy prices. And it's going to be very difficult for German politicians to manage that split between showing solidarity with Ukrainians and also thinking about um, a re-election. As the prices for energy go up, Um, based on what's happening um, geopolitically, people are going to start pushing the blame game. I've noticed this morning on German TV, though, that a lot of politicians are really trying to put a framework on the narrative right now that no one is going to freeze in Germany and there are people dying in Ukraine. I heard that twice from two different politicians. Um, So it looks like um, there is some unity amongst um, the different major parties in Germany about how they're going to deal with it and how they're going to move forward. Dr. Kari Odeman, thanks so much for your time. As always, a political scientist currently in Germany. And um, if you've uh, been with us, you know, um, through the past few months and weeks, you know that we spoke to Dr. Odeman first uh, when she was in Kiev, uh, which is where she was living, but then had to evacuate, I think, about two weeks ago and is currently in Germany. So uh, we are, of course, as she indicated, trying to get to speak to people in the Ukraine. But it is proving to be very, very difficult at the moment, um, as you can imagine. But of course, we will keep trying. Update at noon.